Hunter from the University of Leverage. Uh, he is a professor at the Department of Political Science at the U of L. He's an author of The Provinces and Canadian Foreign Trade Policy and co-editor of several books, including The Harper Area and Canadian Foreign Policy, with Adam Chapman, International Political Economy with Craig Anderson, and the third edition of Readings in Canadian Foreign Policy with Tony Grant. He's also served as the William J. Fulbright Research Chair in Canadian Studies at the State University of New York and as a past president of the International Studies Association of Canada. So, um, let's welcome Dr. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Martin. I had the pleasure of teaching Martin in several classes, so it's quite an honor to be introduced by you today. So, so I was here in April uh, during the uh, negotiations for the Canada-US uh, agreement, and I had some things to say. And today I'm here to sort of follow up and, and add to those comments. So um, my argument isn't going to change much from what it was uh, in April, except I'm going to put it in the context of the, uh, the new agreement uh, and go through that. So unfortunately or fortunately, I am going to repeat some of what I said in April in order to set the context of the broader arguments. Uh, so, uh, let's begin. I don't think we're on a slideshow here. Let me, let me get this one. That's okay. Yeah. That was awesome. So, we still have. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, okay, so there was an industry poll a couple of days ago that was interesting. Uh, October 23rd, 2018, and it was measuring and evaluating Canadians' perceptions on the U.S. Uh, NCA. So 50% of Canadians thought that the U.S. NCA was a worse deal than NAFTA, and only 18% felt that it was better than NAFTA. The interesting part to me, though, was that 50% of respondents felt that Canadian negotiators were too soft or gave up too much uh, for the U.S. NCA negotiations. So the broader context here, right here is whether or not these opinions are justified and whether that reflects reality. So in order to do that, you actually have to do some history. And this is part of the talk that will mirror a lot of what I said when I was here uh, in April. You can't understand the current context of things unless you understand the broader evolving international trade regime of the last seven years or so. Um, and really it goes back to the immediate post-war period in the 1940s, uh, where we get the uh, post-war Red Woods uh, agreement which sets up the International Monetary Fund, the, uh, the uh, World Bank, but also this thing called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT. So the GATT was supposed to deal with post-war liberalization, bringing down protections for on economies, and it focused on tariffs. Tariffs were the main way that countries protected themselves. It was the most obvious thing to negotiate uh, at the time. A tariff is simply a tax on good when it comes to your border. Governments have used them for a very long time to raise money and protect industry, and that was what the agenda of the GATT was. And these are what are called first-generation trade agreements. They focus solely on tariffs. And there were five GATT rounds between 1947 and 1962, 60,000 tariff concessions, a lot of liberalization, and we saw the expansion of the GATT uh, from 23 to 45 countries in this period, although primarily all Western developed capitalist countries at that time. So that, that's the reality of international trade up to the 1960s. Uh, in the 1960s, though, it's, it's important because we begin to see a change take place. And we begin to see the introduction of what are called second generation trade agreements. 
And it starts with the Kennedy Round of the Gap in 1964. So on the table for the Kennedy Round was the traditional first generation stock tariffs, lots of tariff reductions in Kennedy, roughly $40 billion of world trade expected as a result of that round of negotiations. But why Kennedy is so important, and this has a lot to do with what's going to talk about today, is that it's the first agreement internationally to deal with trade rules, rules regarding trade, not just tariffs. And it was one narrow area of trade that uh, was touched on in the Kennedy round is dumping. Uh, dumping is a process where uh, industry will dump a lot of product into a market at a very low price to try and drive out competition. So they'll flood a market with very cheap goods to drive out existing uh, uh, um, uh, people in the market. Uh, the Americans argue we do that with soft and lumber, for example. Um, so there was, this was the first agreement to come up with an anti-dumping code, effectively rules to say you shouldn't do these things. And this is the first uh, example of what we call a second generation trade agreement. Negotiations for that took three years. So when you start getting into rules, it takes a lot longer. The fact that NAFTA didn't take a long period of time is right away a tip off that there's something interesting here. Uh, because whenever you're dealing with rules, it takes a very long time to negotiate new rules. Uh, we also see gap membership rise to 48 states uh, at that particular time as well. Tokyo Round quickly follows, not quickly, it's since like 1779 again. Lots of tariff reductions in the you know, Tokyo Round of the Gap, but lots of new rules. And again, it takes six years to negotiate these new rules. Rules on subsidies, which is another trade uh, practice, where you're subsidizing industry to protect industry. Uh, rules on customs evaluations, trying to make customs harmonized from one border to the next so people know what procedures you're going to run into when you go to those borders. And for the first time, a dispute settlement mechanism. So countries could now, if you had a dispute with another country, you could now take it to the gap and argue uh, over those issues in these dispute settlements, which were brand new things in 1979. And we start to see the gap expand to 102 states, now with a lot of developing states as well, not just developed states. So the big one here, and this is uh, the last the one follow Tokyo is the Uruguay round. Uh, this took seven years to negotiate, uh, and it's profoundly important because of the nature of the rules that were touched on here. Uh, there are some tariffs dealt with in the Uruguay round, but this is a big rules-based agreement, and very complicated rules about very complicated trade practices. So services, trading services, there's a whole section in the Uruguay round on services called the General Agreement on Trading Services. There's a whole section on procurement, the General Procurement Agreement. There's a whole section on intellectual property, a whole section on investment. Uh, these are, these, this is the brave new world for rules-based trade here in terms of a multilateral setting on a large scale. Another important thing is the type of language that's used in these new agreements. So Uruguay represented a shift in the types of uh, legal language that's used. Historically, trade agreements are what are called positive lists. They're very narrow, and so uh, countries are only committing to what they specifically say they're going to commit to which again is a very narrow range of liberalization. What you see with the Uruguay round though is a shift to what are called negative lists. Negative lists are commitments where you say you're going to liberalize everything except for very specific exclusions. Uh, there's also hybrid lists in there. The gas is primarily a hybrid list. It's positive and negative lists. So the, the, the nature of the language changing is also very important. Uh, it also created a brand new institution called the World Trade Organization created a brand new dispute settlement uh, mechanism uh, with the WTO as well. And now we have the WTO uh, consisting of 160 plus states, 
uh, up from 123 and up to 93. So this, if you want to know what significant change looks like, this is profoundly significant change when it comes to international trade. Uh, and we've now been in, in a next round of uh, GAP, uh, WTO negotiations on the, w, uh, the Doha round. We are now in the 17th year of negotiations in Doha round, with no outcome yet. So again, that they're trying to deal with advanced rules and changes to some very complicated things. Uh, so the fact that we bought a new NAFTA in, in several months right away is a sign that uh, probably not much really happened there, which we'll get into in a second. So what is the North American Free Trade Agreement? Well, the North American Free Trade Agreement is actually an extension and broadening of the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. The reason we got a Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement was because Canada and the United States got frustrated with how long the Iroquois round was taking, uh, the previous stuff that I just talked about, and they decided to pick what they wanted out of that and come up with a Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. So a lot of what's in the U.S. free trade agreement was already negotiated and part of the Uruguay round negotiations. Um, now what we also get with, uh, so yeah, NAP is an extension of that with just more stuff in it. So very similar language. You go through the WTO language, you go through the NAP language, a lot of it in, in, the, in the 90s there was very similar. And that's because they were simply borrowing stuff um, for both sets of negotiations. Uh, NAP also included tariff reductions. Also included rules uh, related to services, intellectual property, procurement, liability. Again, a lot of that was very similar as to what was in the WTO uh, that, that happened at the same time. Uh, rules of origin, though, on automobiles was something separate and distinct. Uh, in NAFTA, in NAFTA, there was now rules that said that you would have 62.5 percent of all automobiles manufactured in North America would be from parts from North America. Uh, the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement had similar language, but it was only 50% there. So that was something distinct and different than the WTO. Uh, the NAFTA also had some fairly controversial dispute panels as well. Uh, NAFTA included what was uh, called a Chapter 11 dispute panel. Chapter 11 was for investments, and it was unique because it allowed companies to take governments to uh, the, the uh, NAFTA panel and complain of a loss of investment. If a government did something to, to some policy or procedure that limited their investment potential in a market, they could launch a Chapter 11 uh, challenge, whether it be environmental standards, labor standards, those types of things. And Canada actually got dragged into a lot of these, and we lost several of them, and paid millions of dollars in damages to uh, American companies uh, because of those decisions. So that was in the original NAFTA. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Uh, and we also get two other uh, sets of NAFTA panels as well, Chapter 18 and 19. Chapter 19 panels is where most of the soft and rubber stuff gets uh, argued. Uh, and uh, so that was part of the original agreement as well. NAFTA is also significant because it also starts adopting more negative list language, similar to what's in the WTO. So that's the background. Uh, oh, sorry, there's one more slide. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened after NAFTA. Um, Canada Korea, these are just a, a small sampling of, of agreements, Canada Korea agreements, uh, European <laughs> agreements, CETA, uh, the updated Trans Pacific Partnership, which is now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans, Trans Pacific Partnership, I know what you're about, uh, the CPTPP. Um, so if you look at all of those agreements, though, there's sim similar trends. You have some tariff reductions. You have trade rules, but largely they're around already existing benchmark language and other agreements. And you got a lot of stuff that Canada likes to exclude. 
uh, alcohol, supply management theory, uh, agriculture, those things. Um, the two things I will say about CETA and CPTPP that are different, uh, CETA had a lot of progressive language in it related to procurement, uh, opening markets. Procurement is what governments buy uh, primarily. Uh, local governments, provincial governments, federal governments. Uh, CETA has some progressive language, liberalizing language in, in that that is different. Uh, and there was some uh, access to dairy. And this is what's important to understand NAFTA. CETA opened up uh, Canadian dairy markets by 3.25%. So European dairy producers now have access to 3.25% of our market in dairy. We also got access to the European market the same amount. Uh, CPTPP was the same. We allowed granted access to uh, Asian uh, markets into dairy, uh, Canadian dairy, and we had access to their markets at the same level as CETA. I believe it was 3.25%. So we started to open dairy in previous agreements. I mean, there was there's small trends opening that up earlier than, than what happened with the announcement. So again, the sum of all of this is you want to sum up the last seven years in international trade in one sort of line, which I've done here, very incremental change. It's slow. It evolves very slowly. It takes time. It's asymmetrical in terms of liberalization. It doesn't happen. It's not like everything is liberalized all at the same time very quickly. <coughs> Some things will run, run forward, like procurement and CETA. Other things just stay the same and don't move much at all. And really, we're, we're still stuck in the second generation of trade agreements. It's the same sort of thing. We're dealing with rules. That's what really all this is about, the second generation. It's the old stuff tariffs and then it's rules. That's really what this is, is about primarily. Okay, so let's talk about the new grade. Uh, has come under a lot of scrutiny. Dairy's come under a lot of controversy. Dairy farmers will be quick to tell you that it's been uh, a major threat to their livelihoods. So the first thing we need to understand is what is supply management? Uh, supply management is a combination of things. It's not one thing. Uh, you manage the supply of a particular product through tariffs. Uh, taxes on goods coming to borders, keeping stuff out. That's one way you can manage supply or making expenses to get into the market. Canada's supply management uh, system in, in dairy certainly uses tariffs. It's also fixed prices. It's guaranteeing prices for producers. Uh, and that's something that we do in our dairy uh, sector as well. And it's also quotas, uh, limiting the amounts of competition that can exist in a particular sector as well. So supply management is a combination of those things. And it's prevalent in the Canadian dairy sector and some and poultry as well. So, as I just suggested, CETA and CPTPP both opened access to dairy by 3.25%. It was reciprocal, so this is not a new trend. Okay? The USMCA does the exact same thing to American markets, except it's slightly higher. We're granting access to 3.6% of our market, and we gain reciprocal access to their market of 3.6%. Although there are specific reductions, uh, that Canada has to reduce. So there's some things that we agreed to reduce our production in, and they're not insignificant, because uh, I'm going to defend the dairy farmers here in a second a little bit. Um, skim milk powder, baby formula, and milk protein concentrates are things that we are cutting back our exports to the United States. And a lot of that has to do with industrial uh, production of milk and stuff, cheeses and things that are done on a large scale, cheese production, which is kind of the way most things are these days. So that is not an insignificant thing here in terms of dairy. So what does this mean at, at the end of the day, actual cost? Supply management is still there. Nothing has happened to any supply management. It still exists. 
we'll still be using those three things to uh, affect supply of, of dairy into our market. And Ottawa has already come up and made it very clear that dairy producers will be compensated for any losses that were uh, tied to this particular agreement. There is some validity, though, to the death by a thousand cuts argument that the dairy farmers in Canada and others are, are making, uh, because it is slowly opening the market what, little bit by little bit in every single agreement, uh, and that will likely continue in the future as we move forward. And I don't want to suggest that the caps on the production that we've uh, accepted here in those three areas are insignificant, because they are. Canadian dairy producers are going to have to reduce production in those areas. Um, so there are, there are some changes here. The last point I want to leave you with, though, is on dairy, though, is this is not going to solve the American problem either. Uh, U.S. farmers gain some access, but it, overall it's quite limited. There's more milk produced in the state of Wisconsin than Canada produces in its entirety all on its own. So this is not going to suddenly open the doors for all those dairy farmers in the United States that are complaining about access to the Canadian market. There's still way more milk down there than we know what to do with, and that's not going to change. So automobiles. Now it's 75% of North American auto content must come from the American region, up from 62.5%. Uh, 45%, this is new, well 75% is new, but so is this. 45% of that content must come from workers earning at least $16 an hour. And that's a direct attempt to try and address the wage gap issue with Mexico. Uh, really doesn't have an impact on us. Um, what does potentially have an impact on us is we now are subject to a quota system on automobiles to the U.S. market. So we're only allowed to ship so many automobiles to the U.S. market. Uh, but that quota as of right now is higher than what we currently produce and ship, so it's not going to impact us in the near term anyways. And perhaps most significantly, the USMCA avoided the US American threat of 25% on automobile tariffs. So if, by getting this agreement, it was a way to avoid, which would have been critical. It would have seriously damaged our industry, but certainly would have damaged the American industry as well. Now, you haven't heard too many complaints from Canadian parts manufacturers in the automobile sector regarding the USMCA, USMCA because it, it's really quite, uh, I want to say it's, it's neutral at best, a neutral worse, I would say, uh, certainly uh, positive at best. Canada is part of a deeply integrated uh, regional market for automobiles. So we, uh, I try to explain this to my class if you want to talk about conceptualizing this, but as a car is being put together in North America, that car will actually cross the border several times. And it's cheaper because they're so regional and so specialized in specific things. The transmission will get put in in Mexico, the engine will get put in 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 Michigan, the engine will get put in in Windsor, Ontario, and it will move back and forth. That's what a supply chain is. Uh, the supply of that particular product comes from a bunch of different places. So, deeply integrated, we're, we're going to continue to benefit from the higher content levels, and, and I don't see anything negative there. Dispute settlement. Uh, the new agreement also has some issues related to dispute settlement. After Chapter 11, panels are limited for Canada and the United States. Uh, those are the panels regarding investment that I talked to you about a few minutes ago. Those are not in the new agreement. They still are there for Mexico to a limited extent, uh, and uh, they are still there for that country, but not for Canada and the United States. <coughs> Chapter 19 panels uh, are still there as well, which were very important for Canada. This was one of the things that we said was a red line uh, for Canada. We wouldn't sign an agreement if Chapter 19 was uh, eliminated. And again, that's because a lot of our software lumber disputes end up in Chapter 19 panels. They're crucial for us dealing with the, the, the software lumber issue in this country. So, 
some changes for dispute settlements, uh, but you'll see in the final, one of the final slides I'm suggesting there's not a lot that's negative there for Canada. Intellectual property. Um, this is potentially controversial. Uh, intellectual property is about patents, uh, things new, inventions and things, so the pharmaceuticals, that's kind of what we're going to talk about here. Copyright is for um, uh, published works, uh, books, music, things like that. So that's what intellectual property in the USMC is addressing. So what it did is lengthen patent protection on pharmaceuticals is 10 years. That was what the US limit was all along. The US always had patent protection on, on things for 10 years. Canada's was slightly shorter. I think it was six or seven years. And what that allowed Canada to do was get uh, products into the generic drug industry faster expired faster. So this is now going to extend that process. It does have a potential impact on the Canadian generic drug industry and potentially higher costs for pharmaceutical users uh, by, the, by extending that, that extra three years. So that is one potential thing that's associated with this. Copyrighted works, uh, again, books, music, things like that. Uh, under the USMCA, it will now become public domain 70 years after the author's death. Uh, and that was previously 50 years after the author's death in Canada. So again, we got things into the uh, public domain faster than we did in the United States. Um, the United States uh, has a, uh, I'm sorry, the Canada 50-year mark is based on an 1886 convention uh, that was quite standard in the international community. It's not just some random number we picked up. Uh, so that's why we had 50 years. The United States uh, had 70 and Mexico had 100. So what this new agreement simply does is make it consistent for all three areas on copyright. It will be seven years for everybody now. And for the record, that's exactly what we accepted in the CPTPP previously as well. So this is not a new thing. It's consistent with what we accepted in previous agreements as well. Online shopping um, is also addressed in the USMCA. Uh, de, minimis, de minimis thresholds are amount consumers can buy without having to pay an export tax. So the USMCA deals with minimum thresholds. So anybody's buying on eBay, we'll talk about it here. If you buy something in the United States uh, on eBay or online, when you go to pick up your package, you'll often have to pay Canadian tax on top of that, and then you'll have to pay some type of uh, uh, Canadian order tax on top of that as well. So that's because in the previously, what anything bought online above above $20, which is really insignificant, was subject to both Canadian customs duties and sales tax. So if you bought anything online, eBay or whatever, you had to pay customs duties on that and sales tax on that, about $20. So really, really low. What the USMCA does is it raises that limit to $150 for customs duties, that's the duties part. Uh, anything about $40, you're still gonna have to pay Canadian sales tax on. So uh, it, it raised those levels slightly. The United States limit prior to USMCA was $800. You could buy anything online and import it into the country with no tax or no duties or anything uh, uh, below $800. And that's what the US wanted Canada to adopt, is the $800 limit. But we instead agreed to this, 100, uh, this one, uh, 150 and 40 threshold. This benefits online US retailers, obviously, eBay, et cetera. Potentially hurts Canadian local businesses who are going to have to still collect commission sales tax and GST. Um, but again, uh, some new rules related to online shopping, but uh, uh, I really don't necessarily see anything. Okay, the last two sections here that I'm going to touch on are different and, and quite unique. So, um, the first is section 3210. 
of the USMCA. And this is the uh, aspect of the agreement that says that signatories to the USMCA will not pursue agreements with other non-market countries. So anybody who's a signatory to the USMCA will not negotiate a trade agreement with a non-market country, whatever that means. Um, and any, notice, any attempt to do that, you must provide notice to other signatories and transparently share the results. Now, the controversial part about this is if the other members of the, of the USMCA don't like what you're doing, they can withdraw from the USMCA. So the, the, the fear here is that if someone were to pursue a trade agreement with China, for example, the United States could then withdraw from the USMCA. Now, why is that in there? It's, it's in there for a couple reasons, and I'll tell you why. One is right now. There's some very valid reasons why it's in there. Uh, China has a very closed economy. Even if though it's a member of a number of international uh, trade agreements, uh, it has very discriminatory trade policies. It has numerous state-owned enterprises. There's not a lot of competition, uh, and they have some questionable commitments to intellectual property. So defenders of this from the American side say that this is literally just giving the United States time and space to continue its ongoing battle with China over intellectual property and uh, and other investment issues. Um, other cr critics from the Canadian side say that that will limit our ability to negotiate agreements. We'll, we'll have to see. Section 33 is also interesting because it's, it's something no one expected, and it basically prohibits the three signatories from, and this is a quote from the agreement, manipulating the value of the currencies. Uh, and they have to transparently advise each other of interventions in currency markets. So if the United States is going to go into currency markets and try to manipulate the US dollars, it has to advise the other signatories. So this is kind of the surprise one, and this was a priority for the Americans, which was unexpected for Canada. And uh, I'll come back to that in, in just a second here as I sum up. So I want to give these last two things of what's really significant transformational in terms of the Other stuff in USMCA, zero changes to procurement, WTO rules still apply, no changes to protections for Canada's cultural industries, lots of modernizing old language and after language from the 1990s and lots of subsequent agreements. So a lot of this negotiation was just going through the old language and updating it to new language to other existing benchmarks and CETA and CPTPP. There is a sunset clause. Uh, we will revisit the NAFTA in 16 years, but that was uh, beyond the five-year limit that the United States had wanted. Uh, and we uh, absolutely refused to go there in Canada. Canada, again, just wants the consistency and stability for investment purposes. So what's different? Uh, not much. Dairy, uh, in my opinion. Um, extends the comparable market access that we already granted in other previous agreements. Automobiles, status quo worse, or potentially much better. Dispute settlement, we're not going to miss Chapter 11. Chapter 19 is maintained, and that was an important one for us. Uh, intellectual property and online shopping, once you get past the potential, this was really just about trying to standardize rules. That's all it was. Standardizing rules related to copyright patents and copyrights, so that they're consistent in all three jurisdictions. And again, trying to make uh, standardized rules so you don't have any other dollar limit in one country and a twenty dollar limit in another country uh, in terms of online shopping. Um, so I would argue not a lot. So I want to quickly uh, say something about Canadian negotiators here because a lot of the first slide suggests that most Canadians feel Canadian negotiators didn't do a good job here. I would argue the exact opposite actually. Um, because ultimately what happened here is we get an agreement, the USMCA, which is an ongoing representation of what Canada seeks in these agreements. Very incremental change, very small change, wherever possible. If we're going to move forward on some things, it's usually one thing and one thing only, or, or a small number of things. 
And that's because Canadian negotiators, the past 70 years, have, we, have a, we have a profoundly uh, respected reputation in the international community as being what some people would call chiselers. We are a pain in the ass to deal with in international trade agreements. Uh, because we have these extraordinarily tough positions on issues that we don't budge. Uh, some interesting strategies during the USMCA negotiations, they would present a, a, a negotiation session, the Americans would walk in, and the Canadians, this actually happened, the Canadians refused to negotiate. Instead, had charts and graphs, and then sat there for an hour lecturing American trade negotiators on what they should and shouldn't be doing. And the Americans were there to do business, and then not get a lecture from the Canadians, but that's what happened. Uh, Canadians were very busy lobbying Congress. Canadians were very busy lobbying state governors. Canadians brought all sorts of issues on the table that they had no intention of ever negotiating and wanting the USMCA. We dragged, us, we dragged climate change on the table, indigenous rights, gender equality, US anti-union right to work laws. And again, why did we do that? Because we were simply trying to do what we always do, be difficult to deal with, and hold on really tight to things that we really want. And then if you talk to American negotiation, they were absolutely exasperated. I don't know if you saw Lightsinger in his press conference at the end. He was done. Like, he didn't want anything to do with us, especially our our, our, uh, our minister who did a very good job dealing with the Americans. So what is this all about? Last slide here. What's the point then? What's the point of this thing? I argue that there's four points to this thing, uh, and really not being at all to do with Canada. Um, so, the first is China. I think a lot of this has to do with China. In terms of 3210 and 33, uh, I think for the Americans, it's a way of trying to present, it may not be a reality, but the perception of a very unified front, of the North American front, as it moves forward in its issues with China, whether it's trade and finance. I think that's the, the trying to create that perception was very important for the Americans, and, and they certainly bought that in this agreement. I absolutely think the USMCA is a branding exercise. Uh, Donald Trump could not keep the NAFTA agreement after he campaigned for president disparaging the agreement. Every whistle stop, every speech, it was the worst agreement in human history. He couldn't let that thing stay. So we get a new agreement with a new name. It's now the US-Mexico-Canada agreement. They put us last because they don't like us anymore. And the acronym is also if anybody knows that, most people might pick this up. It's also the acronym for the U.S. Marine Corps. Right? <laughs> and it's, this is a, very much a branding exercise, which leads to number three, a political victory moving into midterm elections in November uh, for Donald Trump and Republicans. But the last one I would argue is also very significant. What Donald Trump and the Americans did very, very well in this negotiation was set the agenda. Uh, from the very beginning, they made it clear that there was going to be a very defensive negotiation here. Canada wasn't going to get, it wasn't going to be a quid pro quo negotiation. It was simply going to be Canada having to defend its interests. We were always on our heels. They always had us on our heels, always throwing new stuff at us. And I think this agenda setting and defensive negotiation strategy is very important for understanding the Americans moving forward. Anybody else who wants to negotiate an agreement with the Americans, whether it's on trade, finance, uh, nuclear weapons, because again, I think there's a pattern here. Donald Trump is tearing up all these other rules, walking away from agreements with Iran, walking away from the international, uh, the, the INF, I can't remember what the INF stands for, but it's the intermediate range nuclear weapons in Europe. And it's to do this. It's to basically come back to the table with a negotiation strategy that will look very much like what happened with the Canadians in Africa. Uh, this was sort of a template for things moving forward. And that's it, thank you.